Father, I come before you and um, what an amazing grace that we can even do that, Lord, to, to come before you. Uh, we have no right for that. Uh, it's all because of Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that what we discuss today, things we talk about, will be glorifying to him. Because he is the only access we have to you. Lord, we live in an age that is urgently running further and further away from you. The hour is desperate. And so much of what's happening in our culture, Lord, comes back to what we have or have not done as a church. And so I pray, Father, that we would begin getting this right. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what is the first thing that you think of when you hear the word church? Family. Do we think family? Some people do, right? Um, we, uh, in this church, we have generations that have come to this church. Um, maybe that's the first thing we think of. Um, or tradition. We just know that this is the right thing to do, and so we do it. Um, or maybe we do think of a building. Maybe we think that, that the church is, is, a, is a structure. And um, biblically, uh, we're going to find when we get to First Peter, uh, that's not actually true. Uh, it's not the building. It's not the space that's occupied that makes, uh, makes the church. Maybe it's duty. Maybe it's... Maybe it has something to do with our thinking that, that God will f- somehow find us acceptable when we stand before him because we, we congregated, we gathered. We could all agree that it does have something to do with people getting together. And it definitely has something to do with people getting together because of their belief in God. That definitely makes up church. But clearly not all gatherings of people are the church. Um, Last year I got to go to a Kansas City Chiefs football game on a Sunday, and I promise you that's not a gathering of the church. And not all people who have religious beliefs are part of the church. And in fact, in today's age, um, you don't even have to actually go to church to be a part of the church, which is kind of a strange thing. There's a lot of confusion on this topic. I was sitting um, several years ago, I I might have shared this before, I was sitting in a a church polity class, a, a Baptist doctrine class in seminary. And the professor on the first day of class asked two extremely simple questions. 
What is the church? And what is a church? By the end of the class, everybody in the class was scratching their heads going, we don't know how to answer those questions. He wasn't trying to psych us out. He simply asked those questions, and for every answer that was given, he would ask a follow-up question that would make us go, wait, hold on just a second. So, for instance, on what is a church, we have church planters on the international field who are reporting church plants. Nobody's asking what those churches are. In some cases, they were a mom and daughter meeting in their home. Nobody else. Is that a church? The church planter says it is. There's a lot of confusion on this topic. It's a start, but it's not a church. Much of what we call church may not be part of the biblical description of what a church actually is. So in the next several weeks, as John mentioned, we're going to introduce you, Ramsey Creek, to the church, what it is biblically. Um, So we'll present several exegetical sermons on pertinent passages of Scripture dealing with the church. Um, We are definitely not trying to exhaust the subject Um, that we could spend, guys, the reality is God's redeemed people are on almost every page of the Bible. Um, we could certainly spend more time doing this, but we're not going to. So, um, so what is, what is church actually? Well, let's start with the word itself. It is kids in the Greek language, the word ekklesia, ekklesia. It can be translated congregation or assembly. But the word itself is very interesting. And its meaning will drive our study through the next several weeks. So if you guys are in here that are preaching, this is really important. Okay? So if you get the meaning of the word church, you pretty much grasp the thrust of this entire study. Okay? So, ecclesia. It has two parts. The first part is ek. Okay, and that's not complicated, right? Um, uh, we've, we have lots of ek words. That's a prefix, right? It, 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 we have ek words uh, that we use all the time. So exit, extinct, uh, extract, extinguish. Those are all ek words, got it? So if you are going to exit, you're going to go out. And if you're extinct, you're... You're gone. You you were, but now you're you're out. If you, when we were at American Botanicals, we would ship uh, plant product, and and some companies would extract the chemicals out of those plant products. So uh, so it means to come out of something. And of course, there's there's a fire. We're gonna we're gonna put it. Everybody got this? This is not complicated, is it? The word ek means out. Klesis, or ekklesia, the second part of this, really isn't that complicated either. Now, I'm going to date myself here. 
I was born in 1980. I know that was a very, very long time ago for some of you. Some of you probably weren't born yet. Now, we had in 1980 a very ancient piece of technology, okay? That piece of technology is called a telephone, okay? And, and the kind of telephones we had, I actually used, the, the, you had to actually like, like, like turn a dial for a number, one number, not all of them, okay? And, and, uh, and the, the, the receiver had a cord on it. Isn't that weird? All right? And, and so, so if you needed to get a hold of somebody, you couldn't Instagram or Facebook or tweet or whatever else, okay? You, you couldn't text them. And, and you, you, this is weird. This is going to be, some of you, this is going to be really strange. You actually had to pick up the telephone, remember a phone number, the whole thing. And in some cases, you might actually have to dial the number one. <laughs> yeah. and, and then, and this is the hardest part of the whole thing. You actually had to verbally, like, you had to use words to talk to the person that answered on the other side. Isn't that crazy? You had to, you had to, you had to actually communicate. And that's what we call a phone call. Or, or cake. Cake? My, ar- archaic. I was born in 80. My hearing's going too, I guess. Yeah, yeah you had a crank phone. You know, kids, back before my technology that I've described, they actually had like a, what was that called, where you just picked up the phone and everybody could hear. What was it? A party line, yeah. Not the kind of party you're thinking of, though. So, ek means, and klesis means, call. It's not complicated, is it? So, by definition, the church is a gathering of people who are called out. Or gather out of a calling. Think about the implications of just the notion of being called out. We, people, are in something we need out of. And the thing that we need into can only be done through the very work and word of God upon us. We need drawn out of the world. And we, and this is going to sound strange, I'm going to say it several times today, we need the church. The only way this is possible is through the gospel. The calling of God upon our lives. And it's this very calling of the gospel upon our lives that the church will find its greatest unity. It's not in our events, and as much as we feel some camaraderie as we approach this 200th anniversary, uh, we have to get up the day after that's all over. And if we don't have unity in the gospel, we're not going to have unity. And we can, we can have unity over commonalities. I mean, I'm, I'm a Missouri-born country boy. I, there's a lot, we're a country church. Not a lot of city folk here, is there? There's a lot we have in common, but that's not going to be enough to unify us. 
And as much as we have close ties, friendships, family here in this church, it will not unify us like the gospel will unify us. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself. And I don't want what I'm saying to not be anchored in the scripture. So the rest of our time today will be an attempt to follow the Bible storyline through the first section of the Old Testament or the Pentateuch. We're going to do this because it's not possible to adequately lay out for you what the nature of the church is and avoid the foundational document that remains the bedrock of all true believing and all true churches today. So if we rightly believe and we are an actual biblical church, we cannot avoid the use of the Old Testament in our study. It's a shame that we've ever published the New Testament without the Old Testament. Okay, So let's go to Genesis chapter 1. And we'll end in Deuteronomy, so hang on, folks. Hope your seat's comfortable. That was a joke. Well, it's not really a joke. I hope your seat's comfortable. And we are getting in Deuteronomy, but don't pass out on me. All right, Genesis chapter 1. We have the creation of everything. Okay? It's simple. God is making stuff. And there's something, and there's several things in the first chapter that are repeated over and over again. We're going to highlight one of those. Notice verse 10. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So he's made seas, and he's made dry earth, and he looks at what he has made and says, I like it. It's good. Verse 12, the last sentence, and God saw that it was good. So the earth is sprouting vegetation, and he likes it. It's good. Verse 14, he creates lights. And in verse 18, last sentence, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, and God saw that it was good. And verse 25, and God saw that it was good. And verse 31, and God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. By that, he means that he likes, not only likes what he has made, that he is, is, is completely satisfied with it. And then we jump to chapter 3. The fall. Adam and Eve are deceived and rebel against their creator. And because of this, verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out. So understand that this unbroken, flawless, sinless fellowship with the Creator is now gone. It cannot be declared good anymore. So now the only way from this point on that men, mankind, can be right with God is God must draw them out of the world. It's all a work of God. Flip over to chapter 6. Verse 5. 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what kind of generation was Noah living in? Pretty wicked. Everybody on the face of the earth had thoughts that were continually evil and against God all the time. But one guy God drew out. And his name was Noah. God draws men. Chapter 11. Tower of Babel. We're not going to read any particular section in this, but you guys remember the story. Uh, People got together and they built a tower in defiance of God. So we're not talking about a group of really humbled people who looked back at the flood and said, man, we really messed up. We should walk with the Lord. Uh Uh-uh. And this was not a tower going, oh, we just want to reach out to the Lord. No, this was in complete defiance of God. So what kind of generation is this? Look at chapter 12. Who's God draw out? Abram. So now, in Noah's day, we had a really wicked generation who were violent and evil continuously. And then in in Abram's day, we have a really arrogant generation. God draws Abram out. And this God makes promises to Abram. That he would bless him and make him a great nation. Fast forward. Abram is given a son. His name is Isaac. And then we'll go to chapter 27. Isaac is that son of promise. And then Isaac is given two sons. Jacob and Esau. Esau's the older. Jacob's the younger. We've covered this. We've been in Genesis, right? You guys remember these stories? Who does God choose? Who does God draw out? Draws Jacob out. This is a reminder that it's not the quality of character that God sees in men. Because Jacob was a rat. He was a scoundrel. And frankly, so was Esau. But God made a promise. And on the basis of that promise, he draws Jacob out. By the end of the book of Genesis, see, we're, we're pretty much done, right, with Genesis. End of Genesis, we have a family from Jacob. How many people? Do you guys remember? End of End of uh, Genesis, beginning of Exodus? Seventy. That's a pretty decent start. I mean, the guy had 12 sons. I mean, inevitably you're going to get some grandkids out of that, right? And he did. He got a lot of them. got 70. By the beginning of the book of Exodus, though, we're looking at... what went from a family of 70 to what's estimated at maybe millions of people. And not that long of a time. They multiplied like rabbits. 
And that was the blessing of God on them because God is is going to make them a nation. So he takes a group of people who, at the beginning of Exodus, are slaves, slaves in Egypt. And he gives them a proto, he gives them a prototype Messiah whose name is Moses. For bonus points, anybody know what Moses' name means? Drawn out. Has a way bigger, richer meaning than just an Egyptian princess pulling a little kid out of a basket in the water, doesn't it? God's going to use the prototype Messiah, Moses, or drawn out, that's his name, and he's going to use him to draw out the, this family that God is going to turn into a nation. He's going to draw them out of their slavery. Then we get to chapter 19 of Exodus. God has done some amazing things, some amazing miracles to get them out of out of Egypt and out of slavery. And he says in chapter 19, verse 4, speaking to Moses, words that will go to the people of Israel, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God has drawn them out. He's now making them a nation. And he says to them, I bore you up. In short, I redeemed you. I own you. And then he gives a conditional statement. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be. That's a conditional statement. Well, that's not fair. I didn't, I didn't think there were conditions. I thought God's love was unconditional. It is. It is. Trust me, when we get, we're going to get into more details about this group of people, and God's love is very unconditional. But I want to say this. God has the right to make conditional statements on the basis of his redemptive work. God has the right to demand your life. If he sent his son to the cross, he has the right to demand your life. And it has been this way from the beginning. Chapter 20. Let's flip a page there. Look at the next column. Uh, God spoke all these words. Verse 1. Saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. So, so he starts. This is the Ten Commandments. He, he begins here. But he doesn't just begin with a bunch of do's and don'ts. He begins with his own character and his own acts on behalf of that group of people. God has the right to do this if he wants to. And his way of fashioning this nation, this nation that he has drawn out, in order to fashion them, he gives them his word. And that word 
is their law. In other words, and this is very important, their their identity as God's people would be their attachment to the things he had spoken through Moses and the prophets. Say this again, their identity as God's people would be their attachment to the things he had spoken. Leviticus, chapter 11. God continues to give laws. We're in sacrificial law now. This is good bedtime reading for many of us. But there are some very interesting things in the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, verse 44. So here he is, uh, again, lots of sacrifices and, and offerings and laying out all these details. But, but verse 40, 44, look at what he says. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be, be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So now, here's the deal, guys. This is not just, this is not just a list of do's and don'ts. And, 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 and it's not just a performance thing for the people. In Leviticus, as he's turning to the importance of sacrificial law, we're introduced to a new word. Well, he's used it. We read it in Exodus, but, but he uses it like dozens of times in the book of Leviticus, and that word is holy. God wanted everything that pertained to his reputation to be holy. All offerings, all sacrifices were to be holy to the Lord. The word holy means separated, means distinct, it means pure or sinless. And I think what God meant, not only in, in those things, but when he uses the word and tells his people that they must be holy, the other connection to this word is the word devoted. So whatever God declared to be holy, it meant that that thing had to be completely devoted to God. But it wasn't just grain offerings and unblemished lambs and first fruits and doves. It is God, this God, who rescued his people out of Egypt. It is this God who also declares that the very people that are bringing those sacrifices also, they themselves had to be holy people. So on the basis of his redeeming act, I drew you out of Egypt and out of slavery. Kids, God has the right to demand holiness out of his people. Well, maybe that's not all the people. Well, look at chapter 19. Maybe it's just a select few. 
chapter 19, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So who? who? Just the leaders, right? All, all the congregation. It's, it's wild to think that when you look at the list of qualifications for pastors and deacons in 1 Timothy 3, is, uh, D.A. Carson says it's a really, the, the unusual thing about that list is it's really normal. Like, like there's nothing unusual about the list of qualifications. Everything that is, is a qualifier for a man to be an overseer in the church is, can be, is commanded of all believers. Not just pastors. It's funny that there's a mentality amongst churches to put pastors and church leaders on a pedestal. It's weird. You shouldn't. Please don't. You know, if I don't put deodorant on, I smell, folks. I'm a normal person. I had a lady, um, I confronted a lady um, years ago over a sin issue, and this lady's sister who lived out of state, who I'd met once in the four and a half years I was there, wrote me a letter. The poor thing. And it explained to me how a pastor is supposed to act. And she said in there that I'm just supposed to smile and go on with it. Why? Why do we have a popish expectation of pastors? The reality is, inside a biblical church, the whole congregation is called to the same standard. Speak to all the congregation. Chapter 20. Verse 22. Let's get some nuts and bolts on this idea of holiness. Verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you out uh, bringing you to live will not vomit you out, or as the young theologian last week was talking about Jonah, barf, barf you out. That's a great word. You guys missed that. You, uh, this is first, second service, right? I've not heard that word barf for I don't know how many years, but it's biblical. <laughs> I'm bringing you to live, uh, to live the land that I'm where I'm bringing you to live may not vomit you out. Verse 23, and you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast. Let's jump down. Verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. What is the distinguishing mark of, of holiness here? Well, there's two, actually. One is that there is, a, like I mentioned, a, a, uh, uh, an identity with, with the commands and the laws of God. 
If you are God's people, you are going to identify with the word of God. You're going to connect yourself with the word of God. So you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I'm bringing you shall may not uh, vomit you out. But that's not all. Because we have if we're saved and we're connected to the word of God, there are some things we have to let go of. Verse 23, you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you. So an attachment to the word of God and a detachment from the things of this world. Holiness demands that we cannot look and act or even think like the lost world around us. And again, look at the theme over and over again. We're seeing that God is not just saying these things. He's saying them as a direct result of his redemptive work. I drew you out. I have the right to tell you how to live your life because I own you. Then we come to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So here's Moses and his last words to the nation of Israel before he dies and before they enter into the promised land. He's giving all these blessings and these cursings of, of these sermons. Verse 6, Deuteronomy 7. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth now that's now listen <laughs> I'm, I'm, christianity in america drives me crazy i'm, I'm not gonna lie um we read that and we go oh god just has oh he just oh, he just thinks we're ooey gooey you know he's just we are we're the diamond that shines in his sunshine hmm Okay, let me explain what it means to be a treasured possession of God. Years ago, my dad pulls me aside. And he has in his hand a gift for me. It's the family castration pocket knife. Said I was probably the only one likely to use it. It's a uh, it's a Henry, I think, or an old timer. This one's got a couple of blades. One of the blades is broken. He gave it to me. And he didn't, of course, I'm saying it and it's being recorded, um, because he didn't want any of the family to know 
that I, I was getting the family castration. Castration, you guys know what, you know what, okay. There is nothing pretty about this. It's old, it's rusty. Bound to cause some tetanus somewhere. Okay, but it's like third generation. I mean, his grandpa used it. The knife's probably 70, 80 years old. Been in the hands of cattlemen for years. I could throw it away, and no garbage man would pick it up and go, wow, this is great. To be a treasure possession does not mean that there's value in the thing itself. But there's, it's the value that's placed upon the thing by the person who values it. God doesn't look at us and, and, and loves us because we're inherently good. He puts that value on us. So, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Look, what did, what did the nation of Israel have? Nothing. What did, what, well, they weren't even big. I mean, they, they, weren't, they weren't comparable even to other nations. Well, why would he do this? Verse 8. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God has the right because he has redeemed us. And he doesn't look at us and go, wow, you guys are just really special. Okay, or to quote my brother-in-law who puts just the right touch of sarcasm on this statement, you're special just like everyone else. The more common we are, the more likely we are to be blessed. And just to continue to bring us down a notch, look at chapter 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them, that is the Canaanites, out before you. It is be, it, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. So, so when, when, when that day comes and they're about to do to that for that day, that day is about to come for them. Joshua is going to lead them into the promised land and they're going to wipe out the Canaanites. They can't get there and go, yeah, it was my righteousness that got me here. Look at the rest of this verse. 
Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. Are you going in to possess their land? But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord, your God, is driving them out um, from before you. And that and that he may confirm the word that the Lord spoke swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So why? Why is he giving them this land? Is it because he's he's the. They are the apple of his eye and he finds them unique and special. No. He made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And it's not that they're less sinful than the Canaanites. It was just time for the Canaanites to go. So he was ejecting them from this special land and he was giving it to a people that he made a promise to. Verse 6, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness. He said that like three times now. You think he's trying to make a point? For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you had been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. That's the kind of people that God has drawn out. Well, they're no different than the Canaanites, exactly. Just so that we're clear, the reason he's doing this is because he made a promise. And he's doing this not because they're inherently good people. He's doing this because he loves them. So, Some application thoughts. The last thing that we need to do today is to conclude that we are somehow entitled. The church, as God intended it, is to display the redeeming power of a promise making and promise keeping God. The church doesn't exist. And you can dislike me if you would like. I'm going to say it anyway. The church doesn't exist to serve people. We are not primarily a non-profit 501c3 service organization that lives for the betterment of our community. We're just not. Community betterment is kind of like a twig on a uh, short branch that's coming from a large trunk. The trunk is God himself. If we're just here for community betterment, then um, probably a Lions Club or a Rotary Club would serve just as well. Let me make this as clear and as simple as I can. The church is all about God. It's about his salvation. It's about his promise. It's about his power. Secondly, no one here has the right to modify the definition of the church. Isn't it sick to think that we would try to improve upon God's definition? God demands his people to be holy And devoted to his purposes 
But clearly he didn't understand that I have a hobby that takes me away from that holiness. Or God didn't obviously understand my work schedule. Or God didn't understand that I have preferences. Isn't it crazy that here in America we constantly lay upon God the need to adjust His standard based on our wishes and our desires, but from what we've read here today, it's God who demands adjustments on our part based on his wishes and his desires. He does this because he has proven he has the power to rescue people. If we turn the tables back to how we do it here, it looks as though we are trying to rescue God. Or worse, We would sit in the place of God himself. Be very careful not to always be looking for an exception clause to obedience. For a saved person, number three, a church itself is not an option B. Let me say this again. You need the church. If you're saved, if you're saved, if you're saved, you need the church. You need accountability if you're saved. You you need the fellowship if you're saved. Joshua Harris has a book called Stop Dating the Church. Get married to the people of God. And we have an approach to church that looks just like that. If you don't feel like you need accountability, and you don't feel like you need the fellowship, how do you know you are saved? 1 John, this is our last text for the day, and we won't be there very long. So we're fast-forwarding way forward, almost to the last book of the Bible. You get there, back up a few pages, 1 John chapter 2. So just so you know, I'm not speaking out of turn. This is a hard thing to say, (laughs) to connect our being saved to some kind of involvement in the church. But this is John. Listen to what John says in 1 John 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So that's pretty, that's pretty plain, isn't it? I mean, if you're saved, you're going to be connected to the body of Christ. This speaks because how many people do we know? They, they hang out with the church for a little while. Yeah, man, I've been a member at Ramsey Creek for, for 55 years. I've not been there for 50 four of them, but I'm a member out there. John's saying, no. Forget membership. An unsaved person, they don't connect themselves to the body of Christ. They just don't. And, and, and it's not just, well, yeah, but I know I'm saved and, and, and um, you know, I've been burned by church. Who hasn't? 
You know why people get burned in churches? Because church is full of people. And for every time we've felt burnt in church, we've probably burnt somebody in church. You know what I'm saying? This is crazy. Look at verse 18. I want to know who the they is. Who's the they of verse 19? Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. The they, according to John, are Antichrist. That's strong language. So it's not just these people are, oh, I, I just I don't, I don't hang out with the church anymore, and I'm, I'm done with that, and I ain't going to do it anymore. John's saying they're against Jesus. They're anti-Christ. And we have all kinds of notions about what the anti-Christ is. That's not one of them, is it? And yet John's saying, you've heard there's an anti-Christ coming, but I'm telling you many anti-Christs have come. They came and they went. The Lord Jesus knocks Saul, the Pharisee, down on his patootie on the road to Damascus. And he says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Jesus was already resurrected, sitting at the right hand of God. Saul was persecuting the church. Saul was imprisoning Christians. Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's people. And when Jesus confronts him, he says, you're persecuting me. Christ attaches himself to this body. Therefore, if we know him, we will be attached to the body. That's clear. We can't shake our fist at God and say that's not fair. It is fair because he sent his son to die in our place. He has the right to demand our lives. And he exercises that right every day because he's Lord. So, I told the guys, maybe I should flesh this out a little bit. My fourth point is we just need to repent of being bad church members. That's it. Shouldn't we? In light of who God is, in light of his character, in light of the fact that he loves a treasured possession, an old, rusty, nasty thing like me, he is a good God. Run to him because of his kindness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that the church is not an accident. It's not an afterthought. You've been thinking about how your people are incorporated together. Be glorified in this fellowship. In Jesus' name.